welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who could do that too, if they had those tools. Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, it's episode number 440 for June 18th, 2018. And on today's show, we're talking about selling tools before you move, your first trip to a lumber yard, and table saw power. And before we get into the meat and the potatoes, let's thank some folks who helped us out over on Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash woodtalk if you want to join in the fun over there. So no deuces, John Baird and Andy Sims. They all signed up for uh, different levels. I'm not going to tell you how much they signed up for. That's private information. And uh, you can go there and see what levels we have, what you get in return. But the most important thing is you're helping to keep this show going. And, That's and, one of our levels, isn't it? If you pay a certain amount, you get to find out how much everyone else contributes. Yes. Yeah, we disclose all of that private information. <laughs> we, we just send you a download. We we basically download the GDPR privacy file and send it to you. That's it. Yep. Yep. That's how we do it. Perfectly legal, too. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, go to patreon.com slash woodtalk, and uh, that's how you get involved in that whole thing. And I think we'll just get right into it today. What's on the bench? Uh, so, for me, gentlemen... I did stop working on a executive desk and started working on a coffee table uh, midway. And, and that's, that was a problem, but it wasn't so bad. Once I got started on the coffee table, I kind of knocked it out in about five days. So that was okay. But now I've got the same transitional problem because I have to stop the coffee table. It's not a hundred percent done, <laughs> but, but I still need to stop it because the executive desk is more important. I got the table as far as I needed to get it um, to help me with my class that I'm teaching. So it's, but it's not important enough that I need to actually finish it right now. So that thing has to go to the side. So I go back to the desk and uh, switching gears again. So my, my brain's just like kind of going haywire and sparking once in a while. It's, it's a pain in my butt. I do not like doing that. Uh, but aside from those two projects, the next thing that happened, well, this past week was a lot of sitting at the computer and dealing with, um, book round two type stuff. Ugh. So yeah, so, <laughs> so there's a couple of uh, chapters in the book that I really didn't flesh out, and I have all the photos that I took, but I never went back and assigned you know captions to photos and organized it. So I had to do two chapters worth of that. Uh, I had to do a reshoot today, which was fantastic because it's now summer. It's a 95 degree day uh, here in beautiful Denver, and um, I had to put on a long sleeve shirt for continuity reasons. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I think Uh, I wore like... Yeah, Yeah, but it's a dry heat. Yeah, very not in my armpits, it's not. Continuity, it's my favorite thing. Yeah, well, Uh. and the funny thing is I did do all that during the winter, and, you know, I don't don't really worry about hiding my tattoos too much, but if I'm doing something something that's going to go out to a, a lot of people and potentially a lot of people who don't know me, if, if I actually can wear a long sleeve shirt and it's comfortable anyway, I actually think that's, that's kind of a good thing. Cause I think it's weird. We still live in a, a world where tattoos can be kind of divisive to, to people. So I intentionally wore this like black thermal. I had two or three of them that I rotated through during the week. And uh, I, I wore that throughout the entire photo shoot. So then of course now, you know, in the middle of June, I have to reshoot this one section and I have to throw on that stupid thermal and take all the shots. So <laughs> thankfully it didn't last that long and I was able to uh, put my trusty t-shirt back on. I, I had a similar issue with the video I was working on for the lumber yard, mm-hmm. except that, uh, my hair had been cut and I'd lost 50 pounds. Oh yeah, there you go. Yep. <laughs> that so would be a little I, bit disjointed. I just had to, since the camera has 10 pounds, I just put eight cameras on me and figured it would look all right. Yeah, but, there you go. Yeah, there was just no, and the worst part was, it was, it was a coloration video. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I had captured all of like the, the coloration changes, but just like that last 10 second, like, you know, goodbye shot. I had the same boards in there and like they were so much darker because it's been like six months that they've just been <laughs> sitting around the shop getting darker and darker and darker. I was like, yeah, is there a way that I can yeah. put like a color block over it and lighten it up? And, you know, how do you add 10 pounds, 15, 20 pounds on camera? It was. Well, that's what the that's awful. what they do in Hollywood all the time. You see these stars going through these like rapid weight changes to to gain weight or lose weight for a role. <laughs> if not in an afternoon. I read an article and I think it was, uh, what's her name? Charlize Theron. And she was talking about how for one role that she had to really get heavy. And she's like, she had to wake herself up in the middle of the night to eat Mac and cheese. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm reading this going, you know, there aren't many people who are going to want to sit here and read about the, the difficulty 
of being, you know, a star who has to wake up to eat mac and cheese. Yeah, <laughs> like she got was, paid nine million dollars <laughs> for doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, boy, that's really tough. Like, you know, who doesn't enjoy a, a three a.m. mac and cheese? It, it it is kind of shocking though, like because then they can go back the other direction with the aid of a personal trainer. Yeah. It's like, oh, and then I lost it all over the course of a week. Yeah. Um, Can't be yeah. healthy to yo-yo like that though. No, probably not. Um, so, okay. And to finish this off real quick with the, uh, because the book is in round two, things are a little bit further along and I actually do have some insight as to a release date, um, which is now slated for March of 2019. So it's a little further out than I thought, but I guess I don't, I don't, I don't know. I only did this once before. What the heck do I know? But I don't know. I think you probably prefer that than like trying to rush it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's, yeah. what I'm thinking we have plenty of time. You're not in a rush to get this book out for any reason. Are you? Mm. I really need to have it out because I need it out there for something other than impatience. Like, um, I did the, I got to pay the cable bill. Yo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at what we do. We've got, uh, you know, we make a video, the video is typically out like that day or the next day. Like we very rarely make stuff and just let it sit around. So I'm in this mindset of like, wow, there's a lot that could change between now and, and March of 2019. Like, I would like to see this thing go out to the public since I've been talking about it and promoting it. Um, but, you know, it's fine. It's fine. We'll have a nice, uh, you know, pre-release, pre-sale sort of bonus thing, and people will be able to get some uh, some cool bonuses by buying the book ahead of time. It gives us plenty of time to plan all that stuff. So it's all good. Eh, well, yeah. It's probably not good to release a book around Christmas either. So it's it's good that they're pushing into the next year. Really isn't like the best time, you think? I don't think so. Uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe. But I would guess like the way I look at it is I don't want to bother people with my stupid book when they've got holiday and family stuff to worry about. Maybe maybe, you you as a marketer. Yeah, I'm not saying this as a like this is a statistical experience (laughs) for me. This is like personally, I don't want to be worrying about this book around Christmas time. (laughs) I don't want to push this down people's throats at Christmas. I'll wait till New Year. Yeah, go buy important stuff. Don't go buy my book for Christmas. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, that's about it for me. And Matt, what you got going on? I did some uh, resin stabilizing for the first time last week, which was uh, really cool. Mm hmm. I used um, some, it's not even spalted maple at this point anymore. It was like rotten. It was just spalt. It was all spalt and like it weighed almost nothing. All spalt, no maple. (laughs) But there's not much (laughs) left of this. The the craziest thing is like how much resin these things absorb. So I weighed them before I put them into the the resin infusion process. And the blanks were like, I think, 2.6 ounces. Mm Mm-hmm. I was an inch and three quarter square by three and a half inches long. And that was like nothing. And I got all the resin, like six ounces and they're like rock hard and solid. And like, like this is not the piece of wood that I put in. There. No. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> Cause it was like, it was like mush before. And, uh, yeah, I took those handle blanks over to Dima's place and he turned some handles for his hammers out of them because like, I've always wanted to do this resin stabilizing process. And most of it's like, because of the size of the blanks, you're kind of limited to like what you can put into an oven because the resin cures under heat. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to put into an oven. So whatever you're making has to be able to fit into an oven. And you probably don't want to do it in your kitchen oven because it does off-gas and fume. Oh. So you don't want to be like cooking like in that oven afterwards. So I bought a, a toaster oven just for the shops just to do that. <laughs> and, you're, and you're limited to what you can fit in there. Yeah, of course. So really, the only, the only practical thing you could do is maybe like if you're doing like a small box part or like turning blanks for like any kind of small turnings would be a good fit for this. Yeah. And, and uh, now every slab you sell comes with bagel bites. <laughs> Yay! Mateo would be happy. You're filling a void in the lumber market, man. I'm telling you, that's right now. <laughs> Come by and have a snack while you look at some slabs. It's awesome. So hey, that's t- actually got some legs. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm always <laughs> hungry when I go buy lumber. So tell me more about the stabilization process and like the material you use because I've never done that before. Yeah, so cactus you can do juice. with yeah, use cactus juice. You can use there's a few different uh, brands of stabilizing resin out there, but they're all kind of like the same principle where they cure under heat. So it's like normal epoxies cure under a chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this stuff, you have to heat it before it actually cures. So you have and a limited amount of time to get as much resin as you need to to fully saturate that piece of wood with as much resin as it could possibly handle. So what the process is doing is replacing all of the empty space, all of the airspace from like the pores and every 
little bit of empty space inside the wood, regardless if it's like punky or not punky or solid or whatever, filling that all with resin. So you're increasing the density. So it's, it's heavier. It's also stronger. And um, you can polish it a lot more. And it just it's a pretty cool and crazy process. But the problem I always had is like, I'm not a turner. So like if I, I just like make a blank and like, okay, cool. Here's a blank of wood that's stabilized. So what? Um, <laughs> now what? Yeah. But uh, like, oh, I can stabilize some blanks, take them over to Dima's place. And you can just turn them in like a minute into a handle. You can see what they look like afterwards. Now, does Dima give you any feedback? Is it is it like turning acrylic? I mean, is it or is it kind of somewhere in between? Uh, I don't know. He's so fast. I don't think he notices anymore. <laughs> His <laughs> eyes are closed. He doesn't know. Well, what's the happening. videos, like the sound, it was really loud. Like the the pitch of the sound yeah. his tool was making it's, i kept looking at the tool thinking what are you using over there it's like industrial aid <laughs> maybe it's just the like the speed and depth of cut he was making or something yeah i think there's a lot of that because it's he was using a um i think a spindle gouge or a roughing gouge or something like that one of those gouge standard gouges mm-hmm. and a benchtop mini lathe but it's also because he's crazy it's like spinning at like whatever the maximum speed for a benchtop lathe is so it's probably like two or three thousand rpm to get that cut speed and with the gouge and with the huge depth of cut, it was pretty loud, but the, the shavings, there weren't really any shavings. It was all dust. It was a very, very dusty turning. So there was a lot different than turning like a normal piece of wood, but I don't know if that's just because there's just so much resin in that specific blank because there was like almost no wood Mm -hmm. to begin with. (laughs) You're mostly turning resin or what, but it was, it was a, it's cool. I think I might do more of that. I got a lot of small stuff that I could turn into blanks for something. Is this cool. um the like similar process to what like Blue Spruce does for their mallets? Exactly that. Mm-hmm. So why am I paying that guy money? <laughs> <laughs> why am I? Why don't I just I don't do this know. Why crap you pay any money? <laughs> I don't know because I'm lazy. That's why. So if you uh, do this, do you need like that chamber um, that sucks all the air out, or can you just like drop it in a bucket? If you really want to like get all of the air out yes well, i guess if it, you had a very loose porous thing but if you're dropping in like a piece of hard maple let's say you're yeah, doing you definitely like, want that in a vacuum okay gotcha yeah that would that would be something you'd really want to get the vacuum on there to get the really poured into the core of those so wait of wood. you matt you didn't use the vacuum i you did i did okay I yeah but say, for, i wouldn't think just soaking it would do it because you get air trapped in there yeah it would i it wouldn't be as good but you yeah. can still do it. I wouldn't. I would. It probably wouldn't work out so well with a solid piece that's not punky, unless you left it in there for like a few weeks or something. Maybe you get somewhat of a decent result, but you you wouldn't get as good of a result if you didn't use a vacuum chamber. Mm, okay. Yeah, because sure. like I'm looking at my blue spruce mallet now, and it's a you know it's a curly maple head, mm-hmm. and I mean that's a dense wood. You just wonder how does he get so much resin in there? Yeah. Vacuum. You suck it all right in. That's how you do it. That's cool. Science. It's good yeah. stuff. I like it. All right, Shannon, what do you got going on? Oh, I had a, I had a, had a, a, a an expletive moment <clears throat> in my shop. Mr. Oh, Murphy yeah. came and visited me and uh, I was scraping glue off, um, a veneered piece that I had, you know, saw on the fretwork and everything for this, uh, Chippendale style mirror. And I was like, it's always the last pass with a card scraper and then just bing, this little kind of punky part of the, the walnut burl veneer just flaked away. And it was right smack in the middle of the crest rail on this mirror. And, you know, I looked at it and I was like, it's not too bad. Cause like I used walnut as the substrate. Um, and certainly the burl is going to be a little bit darker, but since it flaked out in kind of an unusual shape, I was like, all right, that might be all right. And I was kind of, you know, playing playing the bargaining game because I had already like sawn out quarter sawn pieces and glued up a quarter sawn panel and hammer veneered both faces and then fret sawed out everything. I was like, I do not want to have to go back <laughs> to do this again. Yeah, because you can't just veneer over top of it because then you've got that little dent, that little bubble where the veneer was missing. So I'm like doing trying to trying to figure out any way to avoid this. I'm like, you know, let's. Let's just rub some mineral spirits on it and see what it looks like. And it was like, oh, my Lord, that looks terrible. It was basically <laughs> like 
It might as well have been like a light bulb right in the middle of the piece. Just look at me, look at me. It's just this. I mean, it was walnut underneath, but it and it wasn't sapwood, but it might as well have been sapwood. Just like screaming out the middle of this thing. Oh God, how am I going to do this? I'm going to have to come up with a patch. So I had to like go at it with the exacto knife and make sure it was right, um, essentially where a knot was which was unfortunate because I put it there on purpose because it looked kind of cool. It's a book-matched area, but it was just, you know, a really weak spot of of the veneer. So I kind of excavated a little bit more of it away, put some paper over top of it, and um, just used a pencil to actually color in the shape, kind of like doing a brass rubbing. So I actually got a, an accurate representation of the shape of the hole, of the recess, mm-hmm. And then just use an X-Acto knife on top of some more veneer. Thank goodness for sequence matched veneer flitches. Because I was just good. Went one sheet further down into the stack. And I was basically able to get the exact same bit of, of grain. Nice. Um, you know, traced around the, the, the outline on the paper. And I had a little patch. And just had to do a little bit of trimming here and there. Because I wanted to make sure that it didn't overlap at all. Because then again, I'd end up with that little bump section as I tried to veneer it. And... You know, all the time, all the while going, you know, God, I hope this works. I don't want to do this again. And uh, actually, before we started recording was my first opportunity to, to take it out of the clamps. But, you know, because I didn't hammer veneer of that. It's just a, it's a patch that's like, you know, half an inch across. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just like slathered glue on, threw some calls on it and, you know, clamped the life out of it. So I just pulled it out and, oh, my God, it looks fantastic. Like you would never know. It came out so good i'm so thankful major major monkey off my back i literally like didn't sleep last night thinking about oh my god i'm so close to be done with this project literally all i do from here is glue it to the frame and add finish and i'm done and i was (laughs) thinking about having to go back like a week to to do all this stuff all over again because when i mean when when at best i get an hour maybe 90 minutes into the shop at the time it takes a long time to glue up a panel hammer veneer it and frets all that out yeah so, yeah, so relieved that I don't have to do that. And, you know, in theory, I knew how to do this, but I've never been faced with a situation where I had to do a little tiny patch like that. I've had to do patches like right on the edge because it's generally where the veneer kind of chips off or something. And that's pretty easy because you can just glue it in. You can always trim it with a knife like around the edge of something later on. This was fully enclosed in there. And because, it, I mean, I guess because it was so figured, I was, I was a little bit of an advantage because there is no grain direction to burl. You know, it's kind of, it's all just nuts. So I suppose I could have put anything in there, but because it, it's such a focal point of the piece, and it's right in the middle of the piece. Ah, oh, such a relief. So veneer <laughs> patching for the win. Yay. Nice. Sounds like it worked out. That's good. All right. Let's get into uh, what's new. Not a ton of stuff here, but yes, let's, let's do that. Okay. Uh, so I mentioned this before, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure that it was released, but, uh, I am sure now and I've, I've enjoyed it myself. And that is the new Yankee workshop episodes. And you know what? It's worth mentioning multiple times cause it's pretty awesome. So if you go to the, uh, this old house website and, uh, we'll put the link right there in the show notes directly. So it seems like they're slowly, but surely adding the old season, starting with one and it looks like they have a full three seasons up there. I didn't realize season oh, season three was there until recently. Those ones are funny because it's like, where'd all the tools go? Yeah, it's <laughs> the, like well, the shop has evolved over time. No <laughs> doubt about it. So they are up to season three, and it looks like there's a placeholder for uh, the page for season four, but no videos there yet. So uh, definitely go check it out. This is great. This is like history. You know, the fact that this is actually out there, a lot of us really as woodworkers grew up on this stuff and uh it's just fantastic i i've been uh, loading it up on my ipad and every weekend now i i just have that going while i'm cooking breakfast for the family it just reminds me of uh well actually reminds me of times when i didn't actually have a family but I, <laughs> I was the lonely guy making you know breakfast for myself so <laughs> it's a little happier times now but uh, yeah, seriously though, it's really, really good new Yankee workshop and it's free. And if you pay for their insider thing, which I don't do, but that's the, this old house, like premium thing on their website, you actually get all of the plans uh, and the measured dry rings for free. <laughs> well, not for free for part of your, as part of your membership. You got to pronounce these things correctly, guys. I mean, if you're going to, well, hello, my name is Norman. I like to do drawings. Drawings. Um, okay. I think that's about it for that. Uh, Shannon, what do you got there? Cool. Well, I've, I don't know, maybe gotten 30, 100, 150 emails about this. Um, the, uh, 
Bridge City Toolworks is being sold to Harvey Industries, a, a Chinese manufacturing company. No! So, uh, John Economaki, the, the president, founder of Bridge City Toolworks, posted on his blog. Those are still things. And um, talked a little bit about it. And, you know, I've read it and, it you know, I'm, I'm intrigued. At the same time, though, I'm, I'm getting so many people who are really upset about this. You know, oh, there goes the quality of the stuff. And I, I don't know that I have an opinion about this because I really don't know anything about this company. I do know that John has pretty exacting standards. So I'd like to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Then again, he could just be golden parachuting it and good for him that he's got that option, you know? But, yeah. uh, um, have, have either, either of you guys owned Bridge City tools at all? I have two squares that were bought for me um, as a gift. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I have, I'm in the same situation. I have a square and a six-inch ruler that were bought for me by my mother-in-law. Yeah. Um, I just, I've never, never really saw a need for any of their tools. I always thought the designs were cool. I always thought there was some really innovative stuff there, but it just, it was I mean, to be honest, the prices were a bit out of, you know, the ordinary, but I always kept an eye on it. I always thought the Joint Maker Pro was a cool idea, mm-hmm. but it just never, nothing never really landed in my shop for that reason. So yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm kind of curious just to sit and watch and see what happens here. Um, you know, there are some companies in China that manufacture good stuff. If you give them the specs and tell them exactly what to do, they will do good stuff. It's not all bad over there. So I don't know. What do I know? I think the gut reaction for people, like the knee-jerk reaction, is to go, "Oh, Chinese manufacturer, right?" And yeah, immediately yeah. make losing American jobs, sending them overseas. Sure, yeah. sure. Now, aside from that issue, that's not even. What I'm just talking about quality that people tend to to harp on. Uh, I don't you, say it. Someone will write in and say, "Of course it. they will, of course." <laughs> but the, this company, we have talked about them in the past. Do you know the the thing that they make that we've discussed at some point, or maybe even not on the show, but I know it's been in our circles. They made something. What, Harvey re- Industries? That yes. dust collector thing? Is that yeah, yeah. That, that floor standing. That sounds familiar. Big dust collector deal that it, like was all the rage and everyone is saying it's super efficient. And I've even got people saying you got to try it in your shop. And I'm like, have you seen the size of that thing? Like you want me to bring, it's basically like a floor standing freezer, which I, yes. I don't have room for that in my shop either. Um, but yeah, so that's, that this is not the first time we've heard of this company. And that's a pretty interesting product that doesn't look like a throwaway sort of piece of junk, you know? So who knows? <laughs> who knows? I don't think anybody knows anything to be able to have well, like an informed I mean, opinion. like I said, give John Economaki the benefit of the doubt. He's created some pretty amazing quality stuff. I just can't see somebody who built this company from nothing just like selling it off to yeah. just any old company. Yeah. So I have to imagine there's some vetting in there. There's some quality control. And I, I mean, I don't know what's happening. Are there... I, Again, you know, d- does that mean it's all being moved offshore or, is, you know, people losing jobs? Who knows? So there's there's obviously going to be a lot of emotion tied up in this, but let's just wait and see. Well, on the other side of it, they do make some really interesting stuff, right? And oh, yeah. it's incredibly expensive, which is like, even for people like us who tend to spend more money than we need to just to get like a nicer looking thing. Like we just talked about <laughs> Blue Spruce. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you know, that's something we do. But even Bridge City is that you know, that step a little bit too far that I don't think we're even willing to do. <laughs> so there is one thing he mentioned in that blog post about prices, things going down in price. And then also things that are like all they've ever been able to do are small lots and pre-orders. So they're looking to have some of the ones that are economically viable actually be in stock items. So if you like some of this bridge city stuff, it may become available and a little bit cheaper, which makes it more realistic that, you know, people like us would buy one. So uh, I, I'll reserve judgment until we see what they actually do. But I agree with you. You know, trust the guy who who started this thing that he's probably going to make sure it's taken care of, or ho- hopefully, it's making sure it's taken care of. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I don't, I don't see John as a as a golden parachute. See ya. Yeah, I'm out. Cash my check. I'm out. Right. Peace. All right. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's get into our kickback. Who wants to take that first one? Uh, I'll do it since he he said that I told him to. Okay. This is from William. He says, <laughs> as per Shannon's orders, I'm reporting something I hate and, and keep it related. And to keep it related, it's something I encounter all the time on Instagram. Ugh. I have a very small Instagram following, not right. much over 120 followers most of the time. And I'm fine with that. I have no delusions or desire to be building a big following. I just like to see what other people are up to and share my own stuff. Being a beginner, I just hope someone that has even less experience than me can see my stuff and say to themselves, well, if that idiot can do it, surely I can. 
The problem <laughs> I run into is this. 90% of any new followers I get are just reposting other people's stuff with an occasional, quote, sawdust is man glitter t-shirt for sale. Oh, yeah. I've noticed Matt as a very frequent victim of these people. <laughs> anyway, they start following me, presumably waiting for me to follow back. I don't follow back, and they quit following me after a few days. It's just annoying to me, and I'm sure you guys don't even notice this kind of thing with the size of the audience you have. But I'm betting a lot of other people in your audiences are in the same boat as me. It's a good point. I don't notice that because I rarely pay attention to the who's followed and who's unfollowed because it just seems like such a, a flux type thing. But... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's since the beginning of social media. It's follow in order to get the refollow type, the reciprocal follow. And I don't know. Well, and also he's talking about aggregator accounts, which again, yeah. since blogs began, people, you know, especially with when RSS feeds started, uh, websites would just scrape your RSS feed and publish it on their page and surround their ads around it. it this has been a constant battle. So this is just the new Instagram version of this, you know, age old problem, age old. I mean, internet <laughs> age old, <laughs> um, but, but yeah. And it's, it's one of those things like 1999, actually not even that far back. No, no. So, you know, the only time I see this is when someone goes, Hey Mark, did you see someone, this, you know, goofy account has your picture and uh, they always will. Well, not always, but most of the time they will tag the person and credit them, which I guess is something they mm -hmm. feel absolves them of, of their guilt, <laughs> you know? but they're still ultimately, they're still stealing a photo and using it for the sake of selling t-shirts or 16,000 plans or whatever it is. But honestly, reporting to Instagram, specifically Instagram reporting these things, it can be done, but it takes forever to resolve. And it's a giant pain in the butt because it's primarily an app based program, right? You're not really doing much on the desktop with Instagram. You don't have many options there. So reporting this stuff and copying the links to the item you're reporting, it's a giant pain in the butt. Most of the time I just let it go because you're, you're oh, fighting an uphill battle. I can't help but think if you're going to post something on social media, like that's not really yours anymore. I mean, that image anyway, you just threw it out there into the public domain. So people are going to do stuff with it. And what, you know, what am I going to do? I, I don't know. It's just not a battle worth fighting. It's not, but you're wrong because it's, it's definitely it's, not public domain. <laughs> you're let, you're letting people look at it, but that doesn't mean they could do what they want with it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I just legally, Matt, what do you think about this? <laughs> you're right, I, but you're wrong. I find it incredibly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. What did you say, Matt? <laughs> it was. I find it incredibly annoying, just from yeah. like a from like a profile management standpoint, because they'll like they'll tag me in the in the in the post, I guess. Yeah. Which is cool, I guess. But then, like, when I go to like stuff I've been tagged in, someone wants to see stuff that I've been tagged in. It's just all reposted other crap. There's nothing mm -hmm. there is like stuff I've been tagged in. It's for real. It's just my stuff is there like eight times after I posted it because they tagged me in it. Yeah. It's super annoying. And it's like, as soon as I post it, it starts happening. Like, it just starts happening. I got no, oh, you got tagged in this picture. I'm like, oh, someone tagged me in a picture. Cool. No, it's just someone just reposting this thing again. Yeah. And it's like, this, this account or this other account or this other one. And then my favorites are like, when someone sends me the post to other ones that don't tag me in it, I'm like, oh, good. There's even more of them out there that I don't know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the best thing so, you can do if you follow people and you see their stuff being posted on these other accounts, don't follow those other accounts. The only reason they exist is because people follow them blindly because they like pretty pictures and most yeah. people aren't even buying the crap that they're selling, but you just want to see these cool pictures and you think it's harmless. But if you actually want to help the content producers, do not give those crappy fake accounts a follow. And eventually they would go away. I mean, this will never happen because most people are just following instinctively based on what, you know, oh, this looks cool. This person or this thing is usually probably some kind of a bot, you know, like is posted yeah. all this stuff. Um, you know, you just click follow or like, but that actually is, is, uh, is what's hurting this system. Yeah. Like when, when I, when I go through, I usually look and see if anyone's commented there. So yeah. I can answer questions on there accounts right to answer questions someone has about a picture that i posted that's not even on my account anymore but so hopefully it's, like it's exposure man it them to bring them over to me right i know it's exposure i like i have like this like <laughs> this like dying battle in my mind about whether or not this is actually good because personally it's really annoying but it is exposure mm -hmm. but i have no idea if that actually converts to anybody coming over to me 
That's right. Or am I just big enough on that platform already that anyone who's following a stupid accounts already follow me anyway? Yep. That's how, I don't see it as good quality exposure. I think that's the difference. Oh, it's definitely not quality exposure. That's yeah. for sure. You'll get no conversion. Like, Here's four of posts. Those. And then here, you want to buy a t-shirt? Here's four <laughs> right. posts. Here, you want to buy a t-shirt? Right. Here's four posts. Here, you want to buy a t-shirt? I'm pretty sure it's all automated. Like, there's mm-hmm. no way that someone's actually doing this. It's all just a bot that is like, they plugged in like four people's Instagram accounts and the bot automatically grabs like, I don't know, one a day from that person. That's it. And this shares on their page. It all stems back to a guy in China named Ted. 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 <laughs> Ted. I don't want your plans. Ted started it all. Don't need your plans. <laughs> all right. So we got another piece of kickback here from Matt. He says, Hey guys, I got a question observation. Um, you know, I, I'm hesitant to even talk about this because now we're going to be focused on content again. Uh, but he says, has the constant idiotic comments on your free content <laughs> made your retreat behind your paywall? I assume not having to deal with all the jackasses complaining that they don't have a domino or a fancy bandsaw have taken their toll on you. I really like how Marcus started. Not a bandsaw. What's that? A handsaw, not a bandsaw. Oh, yeah. Fancy handsaw. Get some credit to the hand tool guy. Well, I'm thinking he's talking about Matt's giant, you know, bandsaw. That's true. But anyway. Good point. Good point, It's fine. It's fine. I got it. He says, I really like how Mark has started pulling little gems from guild builds for the free site. And how does the internet repay him? They complain. I don't have a domino. I don't make, I don't make or plan on making knockdown furniture, but I watched the video because it was interesting. And yet people complain about this free content. I would like to make a suggestion. Stop apologizing for having the tool shops resources you have. You have all worked very hard to get where you are. Don't feel bad about it. They hate you because they ain't you. I don't, I don't want you to quit. I like that. Uh, but with all the yahoos you deal with, I wouldn't blame you, Matt Parker. So that, I just thought that was, that was nice. That actually made me feel better to read that. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. But the thing is, he's right. I I started posting more and smaller clips that are in a little more bite size just to kind of get my, my free site content up there a little bit. And, and it is a real slap in the face and it happens every time that someone takes the video I just posted. They take that as their opportunity to complain that I haven't been posting. Right. Right. I mean, on a video I just posted and it's like, oh, someone needs to punch you in the head. You know, it, it, it is something that takes its toll, but I think over time it, at least me personally, I could say I've sort of developed this love hate relationship with it. And I have this kind of cynical sense of humor about the whole thing. And I, I'm able to dismiss most of it. Some of it annoys me a little more than others. Some comments are just like, they really bite in a little bit deeper. Uh, but mostly, especially these two guys here know my like real unfiltered feelings about these things. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's going to be a Patreon level too. get a, get a peek at the chat stream yeah, that goes oh on God. between <laughs> what we actually no, say. No, 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 no. But I do have it's a really high Patreon. Milestone. <laughs> yeah. It would cost a lot of money, um, but I do have a very proposal. like um, a, a cynical sense of humor outlook about this stuff because you have to laugh at it, but I also can still hate it at the same time. Right. And honestly, if I haven't like completely retreated behind my paywall yet, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, I still really enjoy my interactions out there that don't cost anybody money. Uh, but you well, know, and that, that's a key point because <clears throat> I, I think about, you know, that, that expression retreating behind the paywall. Cause I think I've done that in a big, bad way, but it's not so much retreating. It's, this is where I make money. Like yeah. I make some money through the public content, but I make so much more percentage wise from the stuff that I'm actually charging for. So as someone who isn't doing this full time yet, I have a limited amount of time, but honestly, I love creating stuff that goes out to the public. I really enjoy it because I do get for every idiot comment, at least these days, I feel like it's gotten a lot better for every idiot comment. I'm usually getting, you know, three or four good ones. Except them over to me. Matt, Matt's getting them all now. Hey, it worked. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So, but it is enjoyable. It's one of the reasons I got into it in the first place. It's one of the reasons that I'm still doing it almost ten years later because it is fun. It's fun to share this stuff. It's fun to kind of to to be a part of that community. But when I've only got like five hours a week that I can really dedicate to this stuff, well, should I do this or should I do something where people are actively paying me for it? And that's what it comes down to. Um, unfortunately, call me a capitalist. But, so it's it's not retreating. It's just only so many hours in the day. Um, also, I mean, like you're saying, it is not retreating. Rather than running away from something bad, you're running towards something good. 
And yes, yeah. that's a point. Right. That's and a good way, way to put it. it. Your interactions with your paying members are higher quality. They're deeper. You learn something from them as well. And it's more of a, an adult civil dialogue, which yeah. is something that is a little fewer and further between in the free environment. You know, yeah. so you could see why someone would, would gravitate toward that. But to me, you know, all these monkeys that we deal with uh, out there, and again, you, you put it very well, it's like the lion's share are positive. Uh, but once in a while, it's the the jerk that comes along. It's just the it's a, the necessary evil of, of that process and what we do. Yeah. yeah, I think I think a lot of it too is like there's a lot of misguidance because this industry is still fairly new and there's not a whole lot of understanding around how these people are putting stuff out here for free and can somehow pay their bills. Yeah. So I think a lot of it comes from that. Where they just don't quite understand that the stuff I put on YouTube doesn't actually like afford me a living. <laughs> it's the right. stuff that comes around it like the guild content or even a sponsorship here and there but it's not the free content that really makes the money yeah and at least the way that i approach these things is like i mean i, I would i'd be lying if i said it didn't like hurt on an emotional level but from a business standpoint the comments that i get like that just tell me that person is not in my audience Mm-mm. i would yeah. prefer for them to leave anyway so because i don't really i don't i don't need people there that can be negative and don't like what i'm doing i want to have an audience of people that care and are passionate about what I'm doing. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, certainly there is an altruistic side saying, you know, I do enjoy creating the content. I do enjoy sharing it, but let's be real. It's marketing content. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm creating this free content because I'm hoping it will drive people to the stuff where they pay me. Yep. Um, and the people that, you know, it's so obvious you're not going to buy anything from me, nor will you ever. So that's cool. You know, do your thing. You're not my target demographic. So, no, yeah, I won't. The people who tell me like, "Oh, I'm I'm so close to unsubscribing" or whatever, I'm like, "That's fine and all," <laughs> because like literally, like I can go on my analytics, I can see how many people unsubscribe every month, and it's been happening since I started. There's always right. a churn rate. It's like I don't need you to tell me that because I know what's happening. I'm not going to keep everybody. That's part of the game. If you are the kind of person who leaves a comment telling a content producer <laughs> the status of your closeness. To hitting oh, a unsubscribe button, you are a very sad little person with, with <laughs> nothing going on in your life. Because if that's all the power you wield and you're swinging it around like it's a giant bat, you're a very sad little person. Um, you know, funny, right on, right on target, one hour ago on my latest video, which was a three-minute video tip on how to chisel a corner that's been rounded by a rounder bit, someone leaves a comment, I miss your short videos. What? On a short video that I just posted. <laughs> That's the best thing. One like last week too. Yeah. It's like, well, what about this one? What about the one before that? How about the one before that? You know, but that's, that's the internet. Great stuff, yep. right? Okay. It's so fun. enough about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, think, let's talk about woodworking. Let's do that. Um, so James called in, <laughs> James called in with a little bit of a kickback regarding the, the domino discussion we had recently. So I was wondering about the the use of the domino in your your videos for joinery. Why exactly wouldn't you just shoot the technique you want to show and then for the rest of the joints use the domino not filming it? That way you get all the speed of the domino with a lot less of the hate of the comments. Oh, and thanks for not quitting. <laughs> okay. I think this is kind of two, direct, two words, me. James. 20 inch, actually three words. 20 inch planer. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I can say that I do this to some extent. The problem is a lot of times I, if I'm showing a, like a classic technique, I don't want people to see one joint that was done the classic way. And then all the other joints during the glue up. Oh, those are funny. They yeah, look like dominoes. Say, when you hit the glue up, like, Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, the that, same. that's a really cheesy move. Um, the other thing is, they are not equal, you know? So if you are doing one type of joinery and then you switch to the domino, you actually have to design for that. You have to make sure your work pieces are the right lengths. If it's an integral tenon versus the domino where they'll be shorter. Uh, even if you're doing loose mortise and tenons where your work pieces can be the same length, the location of your mortises is different. You know, the preparation, everything involved in those two methods of work, it seems like you're, you know, for me, at least on most projects, it's just, it would make more work for me to have to go between two different methods, you know? So ideally it seems, it seems like that would make sense to do that. But when you're talking from like a content production standpoint, there's, there's some hangups with that, unfortunately, but I like where you're going and holy crap, Dougie just dropped a hot one under my desk. 
Nice. Oh boy, that's that's got a meaty smell to it. He's he's, he's fuming. Uh, yeah, he's off gas. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> suddenly, the cherry in this office is a little darker. Uh, okay, so if you want to send us a voicemail, give us some kickback. Use the voice memo app on your little digital phone thingy, and uh, you could send that to woodtalkonline at gmail and we are happy to play them on the show. All right, so I think we got something special here for you, Shannon. Ooh, Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. That's smooth. It's the good stuff. Doesn't that get old? <laughs> you know, I've created a choreography for that. You should really see it. It's I awesome. wish I could. All right. This week, we're talking about the death of the board foot. Do you guys no. remember the first no. time you encountered that term? Yeah. Board foot. Mm-hmm. And you're like, say what now? Yes. <laughs> what is that now? I have no idea. It was so long ago. I can't remember yesterday. I still yeah, don't, well, don't go is. to lumber yards anyway. So that's true. I've gone to what? I've gone twice, three times. All right. So you still don't know what a board foot is. I definitely not. Matches. Well, <laughs> he matches measures <laughs> in boards. Not in board the feet. industry are starting to see that term go away. Um, more and more, and, and actually you can relate this to the average hobbyist, more and more times when you go to a retail lumber yard, it's an S2S product. There's more yards that are carrying surface or at least skip plane than there are rough sawn lumber anymore. They're certainly still out there. There's no doubt. But based upon you know the coast-to-coast stuff that we're selling and then talking to our customers, most of the people are either ordering it planed from us or from some other wholesaler, or they're actually planing it themselves in, in-house because people want to be able to see the grain because thickness planers, wasn't there a comment on YouTube recently, Matt, that you had like, not everybody has a thickness yes, planer. Or something I did like that. Yes. <laughs> so like what woodworker has a thickness planer? And I remember saying, yeah. like, I do a lot. Um, Millions. <laughs> anyway, so it, what that does is it just puts it a little bit more out of reach. So they're opening up their customer base. So more and more you're seeing already surfaced lumber. Well, the problem is that surface lumber is being still sold as four quarter, eight oh. quarter. It's being priced as X board, X dollars per board foot. Um, but you're not actually buying four quarter lumber. You're buying three quarters or, you know, 15 sixteenths or something like that lumber. And yes, you're paying for the sawdust because, or look at it this way. You're paying for the labor that was required to actually take that from a rough sun board into an S2S board. And, and <laughs> that irks a lot of people. But here's the other thing. We, and, and when I say we, I'm referring to kind of the wholesale side of things. We sell more by the piece now than we do by the volume. Um, the days of truckload quantities and near inventory is gone, and we've moved to a just-in-time inventory. Nobody can keep thousands, tens of thousands of board feet around anymore. What they're doing is ordering it when the customer needs it. So they're calling us and saying, okay, I need 20 pieces of this width, in this length, um, you know, this particular thickness. Oh, and I need you to do some other transformation, mill it, you know, S4 asset, S2 asset, straight line rip, any of that stuff. So what's happened is as, as we and other yards, other wholesale yards like us have changed the way we inventory. And we actually have a really cool um, camera system. It's called the Vision Tally that actually scans every pack of lumber and it creates a little diagram and it shows you the width and length of every single board in that pack. And we have now started just with a Sharpie labeling the ingrain of every single board on the yard because it's a really quick way to, to verify length and width because that's how people are ordering now. Hmm. They're ordering specific width and length, realizing that there may be some variance. We're rounding down. You know, if it's seven and, and a half, it's now a seven inch wide board. And the customer is calling with very specific length and width. Nobody is ordering, I need 5,000 board feet of FAS cherry anymore. Hmm. They're specifically saying, I need 10 pieces, six inches, 12 pieces, 12 inches, et cetera, et cetera. And it's changed this board foot volumetric sales model into more of a linear foot model. And we have now begun changing our entire inventory system to reflect that. And several other yards like us have begun to do that as well. So I think personally, this is good news. I think there has for a long time been this adversary relationship between lumber yard and lumber user. 
kind of how many times you've walked out of lumberyard going, I just got shafted somehow. I don't understand, <laughs> but somehow I paid too much money uh, for three that. times, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> three, all time. three times. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact that the lumber and, and most industries have their own vernacular, right? I mean, they have your own terms. And if you're going to do business in that industry, you kind of have to learn those terms. But the problem is everybody else has kind of moved on from this volumetric measure and they're doing things by the square foot, by the linear foot, you know, and the number of times that I have had a conversation with a contractor or any customer manufacturer that's been in the business multiple decades who stops me and goes, what's a board foot. And and you want to laugh and go, you're an idiot. And then you look at me and go, he's been doing this for 40 years. Yeah. He's been putting siding on houses for 40 years. He's been laying floors for 40 years. He doesn't know what a board foot is. He knows what a square foot is. He knows what a linear foot is. And the lumber industry has insisted on sticking to this volumetric measure because, yes, we do end up buying by the volume. But just because we buy that way, does that mean we're going to force our customers to speak that same language when it makes no sense whatsoever to think in terms of volume when you're thinking in terms of how much trim I need to put down, how much flooring I need to put down, what kind of parts I need for the furniture. So that I think is what spawns this adversarial side of things. So we've begun making this change. I've been seeing a lot of lumber yards doing the same thing. And I predict that the board foot will be dead probably within five years. Um, Really? Buyers are now turning over. Guys that have been buying lumber, um, you know, they tend to be kind of the old crotchety guy in the building who's been doing this for 50 years. They're all retiring and 20 somethings and 30 somethings are taking over and they're like, board foot. No, 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 no. My customers are buying it this way. I want to buy it this way as well, because otherwise you get translation errors and you end up with all this volumetric material and we're trying to buy it by the, the linear foot and the computer can't understand it. And, you know, the inventory is a nightmare to try to keep track of. Mm-hmm. I honestly believe the board foot will be gone in five years. So anybody who's complained about that, maybe just hang on a little bit. Well, and uh, let's see, episode of Wood Talk number uh, 9,675. Maybe we'll come back and revisit this. Yeah, it'll be fun. (laughs) I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, as long the one thing I don't like is I I want my wood as rough as possible. And I don't like, I don't like things being pre- milled that way, which just means I have to buy thicker stuff just to get the thickness I wanted in the first place. You know, that, that part bugs me, but well, but I don't think that the, the death of the volumetric measure is going to be the death of the four quarter, five quarter terminology. Yeah. There will always be a variance due to the roughness of a sawmill. Um, but like the, the stuff that we're labeling, you know, on the ingrain, it says, you know, six by 12 on there. That's a rough sawn board. Now, we all of our packs are of the same thickness. We don't mix thicknesses in packs unless it's a pack that's like about to be retired to the chipper or something like that. Yeah. Um, so automatically looking at that pack, the tag says four quarter, five quarter, whatever. So you know the thickness of everything in there and you know that there's some tolerances. Most of our four quarter is usually pretty fat. It usually ends up to be about one and an eighth. But there's going to be variance because mm-hmm. of the just the coarse nature of that saw blade. Um but more importantly, and this is why you round down. Yes, it's one and an eighth, so we're going to call it four quarter, knowing that it's it's at least an inch. Where you run into problems is there are yards that are scant of that inch, and that's I have issue with that. That should not be the case. If you go into a, a yard and buying rough four quarter lumber, and it's not at least an inch, that's they're getting shrinkage somewhere. They're buying it too green, and it's drying up dramatically on them usually. But regardless, the width and the length spec is is really what the way you're going to be buying. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be buying, I need X board feet of four quarter material. It's more of, you know, and think about how you do a parts list. Um, I always have like a model or a drawing or something like that. I generate a parts list getting, you know, approximate, usually rounding up on my, my actual part sizes. And then I build a lumber shopping list and it's kind of reverse engineering from the part back to a board. You know, what are the boards that are, need to be kind of the same color and same grain can or excuse me, what are the parts that need to be the same color and grain? Can I get that out of a single board? So reverse engineering from part back to board, then I ended up with a lumber shopping list that says I need three boards, four quarter by six by eight, you know, one board of a secondary wood that's four quarter by eight by whatever. I'm going to the lumber yard with that in hand. And that's how I'm buying. That's how most people are buying now. Um, what I find silly is when you take that lumber shopping list and then you start calculating board foot 
So I need three pieces of four quarter by six by eight. All right, three, four, six, that is four board feet. So I need 12 board feet of four quarter cherry. That does nobody any good. <laughs> I mean, that, when you think about that, you just lost so much information there. Because what you really need is a six inch wide board because, say, your drawer fronts need to be five and a quarter inches. Well, by going from three six inch wide boards to 12 board feet, you lost all width spec. And you could end up with 12 board feet that's completely unusable. Yeah. And that's what's happening more often than not. And that's why this volumetric thing just needs to go away. Yeah. I mean, usually my shopping list is a combination, you know, like you're talking about. So I know I need about 30 board feet. I know out of that 30 board feet, I need at least one eight footer that is six inches or wider. And then everything else can be mixed, you know, but you really have to bring a, a very strong sense of awareness of what your project requires to be able to get that because you're right. The board foot measurement is a completely sort of generic way of right. summarizing all that material. Well, and if it wasn't priced by the board foot, would you even go to the trouble of saying I need 30 board feet? Oh, no. no you're I doing that. Say, I need if more you're doing, If your thought process is the same as mine, you know, the price lists are changing constantly because the cost of lumber is constantly changing based on the shipment you got. So you're thinking, I'm going to figure it out. I need 30 board feet so I can get there. I can look at the price list and go, okay, it's $3 a board foot. I'm going to end up spending about $100 here. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on in my head. But if the lumber is priced per linear foot or even in many cases priced by the board, you go to a lot of places where there's S2S or S3S lumber, there's a sticker on the board itself saying this board is not X linear feet. It's $20 yeah. for this board. Right. Um, and I think that that's kind of the next iteration. I think that'll be more of the retail um, incarnation rather than uh, a, a wholesale place where people are buying larger volumes because they're buying for a specific job, mm-hmm. um, linear feet or square feet or something like that. Hmm. Interesting stuff. All right, let's get to our email. Try to uh, go through these pretty quickly. We're running long. Uh, let's see. First one here is from Eric. He says, my wife and I are contemplating a move as a hybrid woodworking hobbyist. I currently have a small workshop and most likely will not have one for about a year. What would you keep and what would you get rid of before moving large and small pieces of wood, large and small tools, chemicals, etc." All right. So this is something I've done. I've, I've got a little experience with this whole moving thing. You've moved. I, I have, I have now I sold off some things. experience paying people to move for you. Come on. <laughs> This is true. It's very true. (laughs) You're right, but you're wrong. They know me by first name uh, over at Jones Moving. Um, So, yeah, I I actually did sell off some things, but I don't know that I would have made that same set of decisions if I weren't in a very fortunate sponsorship position. Right. So I knew there were certain calculated things I knew that I could get rid of that I could get like a new version of once I got where I was going. Uh, but it, it, again, if I, if I didn't have, for instance, Powermatic backing me, I'm not sure that I would have made that move with the table saw. Uh, but I knew that the new PM 2000 would be something that they would want to see in the shop. Anyway, it was just a win-win. And I figured if I didn't have to move it, that would just make life easier. So honestly, if I had big tools, those would not be the things that I would sell. I mean, unless you've got the budget to, to, uh, count for some loss in this process, a financial loss in the process of selling and buying a new one. Um, I wouldn't even bother. Now, the only thing, the only exception would be things that you know you can get near retail value for um, when you resell it. So if you are selling, let's say, some Festool gear, chances are you can get pretty close to the retail price of most of that stuff and then go buy it again later if you really wanted to. So that would be something to think about. Uh, I would definitely offload chemicals, anything that's volatile. I probably would not want to put those in storage for a period of time, but I would bring the expensive tools and make sure that those make the trip because it just doesn't seem like it would be financially smart to uh, sell those and then buy again later. Uh, let's see what else did he mention there? Um, wood. Okay. So that was a big deal. Um, the wood takes up a lot of space and it's a pain in the butt to move. So my justification for that was I'm going to sell off all the stuff that's kind of easy to get and I could sell a big you know, lot of this, give it to someone else, they could do something good with it, and then I could buy more of when I, you know, more of this stuff when I get there. So anything that was really weird, exotic, figured, fancy, expensive, all that stuff I kept because that's just more difficult to replace. If I had a couple of cherry boards, a couple of walnut boards, uh, you know, these are things that I, you know, I found someone who was willing to take it off my hands and all that like scrap that's, I call it scrap, but a lot of people might call it project wood because it's like, <laughs> it's a little bit too small to go into like the normal size stuff I make, but it's definitely not small well, that enough. Aloof to, rocker left over. Oh words. my gosh, that was nuts. I had, I was going through that for, for 
like a dozen projects. Uh, but yeah, so all of that stuff is, is just was a pain in the ass to move with. So I was able to make a few bucks off of it and didn't have, uh, especially when you move into a new space and you don't have a lumber rack ready to go and you put that stuff, a lot of times you put it in a condition where it's actually, actually not being stored well. And in the time that you're waiting, the stuff could actually just be mistreated. And then you wind up with wood that's not as usable as it was before anyway. So um, definitely think long and hard about which boards you bring with you. Uh, but that that's the strategy I would recommend. And I'm Good. done. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it was so quiet. I was like, what the, the call disconnect? What the heck? <laughs> yeah, just me no, making we're you just uncomfortable. Waiting for you to say something. Uh, you should know this drill by now. Come on. No, 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 no. All right. This is from Greg Double G. It says, uh, hey guys, I was ambivalent to so you're not quitting until I realized I needed your advice. I've got a hybrid table saw with a one and three quarter horsepower motor, but it feels like a quarter horsepower sometimes. It's even bogged down cutting through two by fours and I'm not pushing them through that hard. Hmm. Should I get a thin, thin curve blade or a three horsepower or five horsepower saw? Mark, do you have any Parmatic coupons laying around so I can afford to upgrade? You know it. Oh, oh man. So this is an interesting question because I used to have a horse and three quarter saw and if it bogged down cutting a two by four, something is definitely wrong. So we can, we can kind of talk through a few of the things that can be happening here. Maybe your blade is crap. That's, uh, that's possible. But if you're not getting any burning and it's not like physically hard to push the wood through, then maybe it's not the blade. The next thing I would check would be the bearings inside the saw. So if you take the blade off and you try and turn the arbor by hand, you should be able to turn the belts through all the pulleys and turn the motors well fairly easy. It shouldn't feel too bad. If you want to take it a step further... Take the belt off so you can only just turn the arbor itself and then the motor, and you should be able to feel if there's any kind of resistance there. What is probably happening is maybe the bearings are bad or you have some kind of resistance somewhere in the system, so the motor is actually working a lot harder to actually get the blade to spin. Um, on my uh, old rigid saw, the bearings went out. They were pretty bad, so it did have a lot of problems cutting through things because the motor was fighting the bearings, all the, resist- all the resistance in the bearings, so it was kind of lost energy there. Uh, if you want to upgrade, you go for it. I'm not going to say don't upgrade, but uh, a horse and three quarters should have no problem going flying through a two by four. Like, absolutely flying through it, even with a full curve blade, should fly. Yeah, that's suspicious, right? Something's up. Yes, Some, something's up. Something's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, just for the for burning. Excuse. That was it for me. That was always because I had one and three quarter as well, and cleaning the blade made like a world of difference. Just getting the pitch mm. off the the carbide teeth mm-hmm. made a huge difference. Nice. Okay, this is from Kathy, and I kind of accidentally sort of already answered this a little bit, but <laughs> she says, as a newbie female woodworker, I find the idea of walking into my first real lumber yard about as daunting as the first time I walked into a comic book store. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice, good analogy. Uh, do you have any advice for how to approach a lumber yard as a new woodworker who really isn't sure what she's going to find and what's going to be the right choice for the project? Should I know what I want already, or can I hope for a little advice? How are they usually arranged? How do you know if it's a good place to buy lumber? So a bunch of questions here. Um, And and as I was talking about before, that lumber shopping list process, I do think that it's a good idea to have a pretty solid idea of what you need before you go in there. Because A, there's the whole kid in the candy store effect. You get there and you just go, oh, wow. And you end up buying a bunch of stuff that you don't really need, which, granted, you might use it down the road someday because that's how we rationalize all of this stuff. That's why I still have an eight quarter by 12 by six foot long piece of Purple Heart in my lumber shed <laughs> that I've owned for 10 years. You know, I just, wow, it's I'll find so use for beautiful. it. <laughs> so, you know, having having a plan, trying not to get distracted a little bit and knowing what you need. And and do your best to dumb it down as much as possible and expect that in the heat of the moment or to, to be honest, the first time you go to a lumberyard, it can be daunting. You know, sometimes the, the workers will just leave you alone. Other times they stand there and they tap your toe, tap their toe like over your shoulder. And it's yeah. really kind of you feel rushed and you, you, you make mistakes. So that's why I like to dumb it down to I need X pieces of a board that's this wide and this long. Um, and I've already done kind of the organization in my head that this board is going to give me my drawer fronts. This board is going to give me my case sides, my top and my bottom. Um, this board over here is going to give me my drawer blades. I don't know. I'm build- Suddenly I'm building a chest of drawers. I, I don't know where that just came from. But <laughs> Good choice. So I, 
I have an idea and I've actually written this down on my sheet of paper and I've lumped them together into, again, where do I need color consistency? You know, in an ideal world, I'll get this all out of one board. Well, that would mean I need a 12 foot long board. All right. Well, plan A is can I get a 12 foot long board? But knowing that I may not get that, what would plan B be? Well, eight foot boards, you can pretty much get them anywhere. I'll get two of those eight foot boards, but I need to make sure the color is good. I mean, I'm literally in a lot of instances, I will have an A and a B column on the sheet of paper. So I really am super hyper organized going in there, knowing what I need to get. The other rule of thumb, and you hear this all the time is buy extra lumber. Some people say buy 20% more. I don't, I don't care about the percentages. I usually will just say, get an extra board. Like if I'm building it out of cherry Get just another board of cherry. I don't care if it's just, if it's an FAS board, it's going to at least be six inches wide and eight feet long. In order to meet grade, it has to at least be six by eight, um, unless it's an offcut or something like that, and that's a whole other different issue. But just buy another board. Um, yes, that's going to be more expensive, but is it that much more expensive than having to go back to the lumber yard and paying the gas to get it later? And if you don't use it, this is how you start to build a lumber collection. This is how you start to not have to go to the lumber yard when you build the next project, because you can just go to your lumber rack and go, oh, how do I design this based on what I have? So it's got to start somewhere. The second thing is, yes, you can ask questions. I mean, every lumber yard is going to be a little bit different. There's a lot of stories about the curmudgeon lumber yard guy. But if you're organized and you have an idea of what you're looking for, you're usually going to get helped pretty well. These are decent people. If you just show up and you say, <laughs> I need wood, you can expect to be a little bit, get faced with a little bit of exasperation. <laughs> well, what kind of wood do you need? Well, I need, I don't know. What can you recommend? Well, again, you're asking this person to make assumptions about what you're building. And that's when things start to get a little bit weird. They, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and if you've been going to a lumber yard for a while, you may develop that relationship. I have a relationship with some of the guys at Hearn Hardwoods where I can go in and say, you know what? I'm, I'm building a chest of drawers again. And I really <laughs> again. want some pieces <laughs> from my book. What do you have? Yeah. You know, and that, and you can get that. But when you're first starting out, you don't want to leave that to chance. And if you run into that situation, you run into that kind of helpful personality. That's awesome. Go back to that lumber yard. Um, as far as how do you know what's a good place to buy lumber? You kind of just need to go there and you need to look around and just see what is their selection like? What what is their, you know, are is everything neatly stacked? Is it just kind of thrown all over the place? Are there other people shopping there? Um what's your gut reaction? The same way that you would make a call on buying something from anybody um in in person. Um you know, you, you can you can pretty much size up the situation just by how well the place is maintained you know are there cobwebs everywhere that might be a bit of an issue but the cool thing is for the type of woodworking that the hobbyist does you can get away with a lot of pretty crappy lumber that the industry or the commercial side of things would think was just awful grade lumber we can still use it i mean look at everything that matt has that's all crap <laughs> i mean true. seriously by, true. by commercial standards matt's house not his house his lumber yard <laughs> that's house is just crap you should it's see it. crap wood. that's house and crap wood box elder is is firewood for the most part you know all <laughs> oh, that's got knots in it it's firewood so but those of us you know that are, that are building furniture and we love to make waterfall tables and stuff matt's house is a gold mine <laughs> to yeah. the trim carpenter it's sanford and son's front yard so <laughs> You know, it's all it's all relative. So I think you just got to go there and kind of make a gut reaction based upon how you feel. Do you feel unwelcome? Okay, maybe that's not a yard you want to patronize, or you just know exactly what you need to get. Kind of like a you know husband in a department store. <laughs> I'm going right here. I'm buying this. Turn around and coming right back out. You Man, know, that's the the problem is though if you feel unwelcome. I don't know of a lumber place I've gone to that I didn't feel unwelcome. If if you're if the thing you're comparing it to is the welcome you receive when you walk into Walmart, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> thanks for coming to Walmart. Can I show you where That's to go? Like, like the, it, it is not. It, it is mostly a self service environment, so it it feels like. Um, again, a lot of people may in, interpret that as being an unwelcoming environment. So, and just to say to Kathy, look, this is, this is something we all go through. Um, you kind of get over it after a while and you know, you have expectations on what they should and should not be able to do for you. But initially, you know, that's why like one of the first videos I made video number four, 
<laughs> the Wood Whisperer is about that experience of going to buy lumber and how intimidating it can be. And I'll also tell you, depending on the store, every time I go into a new comic book store, I can't, I can't, that's such a great analogy. I use that, yeah. like the same exact feeling where you go in and unless you've been there before and you got like a pull list or something and they know you, you walk in and you like, you have to go like, are these people even in business? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, do they even give a crap? I just walk through the door. Like it, it is always like that. So you're not alone, Kathy. Like this is something that still is an issue for, for us, even if we've been doing this for a while. Help me. Yeah. I'm I guess. Secret Wars. Hold First on. Secret Wars or the second Secret Wars. Um, Hold on. I'm catching Pokemon. I want a Spider-Man catching comic. Po- <laughs> <laughs> Superior Spider-Man. Extraordinary Spider-Man. Amazing, amazing Spider-Man. Spider-Man Web of Spider-Man. Spider-Man <laughs> new Spider-Man. No, old Spider-Man. I don't know. <laughs> so great. Kathy, you write in any time. Any comic time. fan and a woodworker. Yeah. Let's talk about comic books next time, though. Uh, okay, so if you want to help out the show, you can do that. You could uh, go to TWWstore.com, buy yourself a t-shirt. You can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash woodtalk. And you could leave us a review on iTunes. We had a review here from Bill Herman. He says... There are other woodworking podcasts, but this is the only one I listen to on a consistent basis. The hosts are both informative and entertaining. Some other woodworking podcasts have hosts that, well, let's just say that there is a world of difference between being knowledgeable and being knowledgeable and able to share that knowledge in a way that holds people's interest. If you are a woodworker, you should be listening to Wood Talk. Well, thank you wow. so much for that, Bill. That's a, a wonderful review. I, I, I totally misheard that. I mean, I said they're both informative and whatever. I just thought he meant like both of them are informative and the third one, not so much. <laughs> not, yeah, well, who's the third one? Ah, oh, crap. Which one of us is Here we go again. <laughs> this game again? Yeah. I don't know who they're talking about. Uh, all right, Shannon, give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. Uh, I'd love to. If you have comments, questions, topics, suggestions, things you hate, lumberyard stories, please, please. Send us a voicemail. Use your voice memo app and send it to woodtalkonline at gmail.com or use our contact form at woodtalkshow.com slash contact. Go figure, right? Mm-hmm. Or leave comments on our website or find us on Instagram or the Facebook or the Twitters or Mark's Snapchat, all that stuff. Dude, I don't even do Snapchat. I'm an Instagram stories guy. All right, then oh. go to Matt's Vero account. <laughs> yeah, that's a hot it's, place to be. there. I haven't been there for... <laughs> three months but yeah go there you need to tell them to give you all like to erase all of your private information you're done with them it's fishy over there all right well thanks thanks for listening everybody we will catch you next time (laughs) bye-bye see ya